quite a lively bunch. Uh, sometimes you wonder, you're like, man, you sure Jesus uh, invited the children when he was speaking and stuff? Surely they put them over in the nursery, right? But nonetheless, he does invite the children and he invites us to invite children and to be a place that is hospitable for children. And we're doing all we can uh, at Harvest Point to do that. We really are. And so you're going to see that more and more. Now, turn with me to uh, Daniel chapter 5, and we're going to look again at another chapter, another episode in this saga of Daniel. And quite frankly, you may, as we um, sort of begin to look at this story and recount what is there, you may have a bit of deja vu. You may think to yourself, they've changed something in the matrix now. And so, nonetheless, uh, it is a very familiar story, even though the players have changed. Uh, Things really remain the same of what has been happening in these six chapters of narrative in Daniel. You'll remember that the first six chapters are narrative. The last six chapters of this book are apocalyptic as far as its genre. Let's start reading here, and we're just going to read a brief bit uh, of Daniel 5. We really would do well to read the whole thing, and I hope you have read the whole thing. As, as I've been asking you to do, read over Daniel each and every week in preparation for our time. But notice this, starting with verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and... Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from this kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of man and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart Though you knew all of this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone which do not see or hear or know, but the God 
in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then, from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Let us pray. O God, would you speak through your word as you have for thousands of years... Not because of what a man says, but rather because of what the Spirit says. Lord, today, may I simply be the conduit for the Spirit to work. Just as our worship team has, just as our lector has, just as all those who have prepared this room have been your hands and feet to allow for the Spirit to speak. And so we pray you would. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, same genre. It's narrative. It's set in the court of a pagan king. Same Similar plot again. The storyline is very much the same. You know, we've got, we've got this competition, if you will. If you've read the whole chapter, you know it's a competition between the wise men again and this slave exile from Judah, Daniel. The sins are similar again. I mean, this is real continuity in the episodes of this season of Daniel. And the sins are pride and false gods. The props also are very similar that support the plot. I mean, we see, again, some of the same stuff going on. Uh, Some of the same pomp and proudness of a king, and yet the humbleness and humility of Daniel set again in the court. And then, of course, our theme that has been running all throughout this book is that in spite of present appearances, God is in control. No matter what you feel like, no matter what's happening in the news, no matter what's happening in your personal life, God is in control. Control. When everything is surmounting against you, God is in control. When it seems as if darkness has covered the face of the earth and no one does good, God is in control. When Jesus weeps over Jerusalem as he enters it for the final time in his earthly life, God is is in control. When Jesus rides in on a donkey, yes, the cult of a donkey, 
God is in control. Not because he rides in with a white horse strapped up with bombs and smoke grenades and AR-15 and Barrett 50 cows with an army behind him with Apaches and Blackhawks. That's not how he enters. That's not how he conquers evil. No, Jesus rides in with a bunch of guys that are about to run away from him. Not SEAL Team 6. Jesus rides in with a traitor in his posse. Jesus rides in as a Jew under Roman rule into the territory now of the Jewish leaders where he knows he will be arrested. Jesus rides in truly, if you understand the triumphal entry, as a defeated king on show for the world to see. They would often, in the ancient world, parade the captured king through the streets. This is how Jesus enters. Jesus rides in with the fanfare, but soon the public tide of opinion will change. And all the while, God is in control. Because because this is God who's riding in. He chose. Did he not tell his disciples when you read of the triumphal entry on this Palm Sunday? He tells the disciples to go get a donkey. Not to spend all their money on a horse, but a donkey. And now... Daniel gives us a brief sermon, doesn't he, before he tells the interpretation. He says, look, I'll tell you the interpretation of these words. But before I do, I'm going to give you a bit of a sermon to remind you of what your father did. And that was he raised himself up and God humbled him to the point of being with the wild donkeys. And Jesus rides in on a donkey and God is in control. You see, throughout the book of Daniel, in these six narrative chapters and episodes that we have, one, two, four, and five deal with a court contest between the wise men and the magicians and the astrologers and all the soothsayers and Daniel and this slave from Judah who continually gets this one title. The Spirit of the Gods is with him. And then chapters 3 and 6 are a court conflict where things go really bad. It's not necessarily a contest so much. It is in a way, but not in the same way. And we'll see that next week in chapter 6. But who wins? God wins. God wins throughout the entire book and in every episode through Daniel. You know, there's a reason why the good guy always wins in the stories. It's why, I mean, you come down to the end of the movie, you're you're thinking, this thing only has like five minutes left. I know something's going to happen here where the good guy comes out on top. Especially if it's not one of those dumb ones that do this to be continued, right? 
The reason they continued is because they know you're not going to be satisfied until the good guy wins. Why? Why does the good guy have to always win? And it's because the good guy does, in fact, win. And he's already won. This is why God is in control and we don't have to worry about things. Yes, the world is in trouble. Yes, the drums of war are beating. But God is in control. And what we learn over and over again is He is the one that is moving the pieces. It's not the ingenuity of America. It's not our wisdom or our wise men or talking heads that saves the day any more than it was the conventional wisdom of this day. You see, Daniel is not just for the old timers. It's not just for past generations. It is for our generation. It is for today. So we've seen this before. Sin. Pride. And the way this story operates is by starting off with much drinking of wine. And maybe it should act as a warning for us. He gets the wine going. He has all of his lords invited. He invites all of his concubines and women and all the powerful people, anybody that's on the who's who list, and they bring out the best of wine. And then he says, you know what? And by the way, many people think that this is sort of a test again, just like the statue was a test to see, hey, are you going to bow down? Because we know, we actually do know historically speaking, that Belshazzar was not doing well at war. He was losing. And yet, he has this big feast. Why would you do that? To make sure you circle the wagons and make sure everybody's drinking from the same cup and everybody's on the same page. And so he does this and he says, you know what? Tell you what. We're going to get really lavish. I'm going to show you that this is a big celebration. We're going to bring out that one God and his temple and his holy vessels. And we're going to drink our fill from that God. Because, you know, there's nothing more insulting than drinking from a defeated God's holy vessels. This is mockery, of course. And so they do. They bring them out. And this is pride at its best. This is scoffing at its best. And this week, Good Friday will be a day where we remember the scoffing and mocking that Jesus went through. Jesus was mocked. They put the thorns on his head for a crown as a king. They put a purple robe on him that wasn't his own. They spat in his face as he was blindfolded and slapped him across the face and said, if you're this Messiah, then prophesy and tell us who just did that. They mocked God. You know, you've probably heard of the seven deadly sins. I'm not going to go into a history of the seven deadly sins. In one way, they're not biblical. In another way, they are very biblical. Sort of created by the Catholic Church through some of their theology But I think as you run down through the seven deadly sins, somebody's going to be touched by one of them. 
somebody's going to be chained by one of them. The first of which is lust. And in our devotional reading, surrendered, the prayer every single day is this. O Lord and Master of my life, take from me the spirit of laziness, despair, lust of power, and idle talk. But give rather humility. Gluttony. Greed. Avarice. Acedia. Slothfulness. Which I think is probably a generational tragedy for this up and coming generation who has so much stuff that there's really nothing that impresses anymore. There's nothing that wows anymore. There's just nothing. It's not passion for the wrong things. It's lack of passion. Wrath. Anger. Envy. Wanting what others have. Unable to be thankful for others' success. That one creeps in, doesn't it? Keeping up with the Joneses. Having what everybody else has. And then finally, the worst of all sins, because it's the beginning of all sins, is pride. Truly, even the first sin and always at the heart of all our sinning, pride. At the center of sin is I. I can replace God. I know God says not to take of the fruit, but it looks good to me. It tastes good to me. And who are you to tell me what to do? I hear that quite a bit. It's my body. Who are you to tell me what to do? And this week, Jesus says, this is my body given for you. He counts himself as nothing. He humbles himself to the point of death. See, we're not far from being like Belshazzar, really. It's always lurking around the corner. All our feasting, all our lavish living may not feel like it, and it didn't to him either. It doesn't to anybody that lives that way all the time. You get used to it till you go to a different country, till you learn, learn of someone else's home life. And so, in the midst of this celebration, <laughs> they're drinking it up. He's, he's really brought out all the best goblets, all the best plates from Yahweh's temple. And then all of a sudden, there is a hand that starts writing. You may have noticed I entitled the message, Daniel, handwriting. Because literally, that's what this chapter is about, is a hand that starts writing on the wall with its fingers. And it writes, 
four words in Aramaic. We read them just a moment ago. And (laughs) the Bible says that when this happened, uh, Belshazzar's color changed. You ever seen somebody do that? I mean, like while you're talking to them, their color changes. I've had to confront some people from time to time, and I've seen their color change when they get confronted. I've actually seen this red thing start creeping up their neck all the way until it covers their entire head. And I'm like, I start getting nervous then. I wasn't nervous going in. Now I'm really nervous. Is everything okay? I've seen people turn white. I mean, scared to death. (laughs) And Belshazzar's color changes when this hand starts writing. Not only that, it says he was very alarmed in his thoughts. (laughs) It's a nice way of putting it. (laughs) And his limbs gave way. He nearly collapses. And, I love this part, and his knees knocked together. I mean, you know, this is like going back to Looney Tunes, right? Where they get scared and their eyeballs come out and, you know, their knees, you know. I mean, this guy is genuinely scared to death. And I love the narrative way it describes it. I mean, you just, as a kid, Justin, I used to always laugh about that. You know, he's just scared to death. It just reminded us of Looney Tunes. He's scared because something's not right. There shouldn't be a handwriting. He knows about handwriting, but not this kind of handwriting. Interestingly, he doesn't know what it says, even though they all know Aramaic. <laughs> uh, maybe he's just too dumbfounded and scared. You know how when you get scared, your brain stops working, right? They tell you in emergency situations, the last thing you want to do is for your brain to stop working. You're just going to drown at that point because you can't think. Whatever it was, he says, look, bring everybody in that knows anybody, that knows anything, to tell me what this says. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll put a purple cloth on them, and I'll give them a big gold chain to wear around their neck. I don't think he meant like a gangster chain. But nonetheless, it does say a big gold chain. And I'll make him third... Ruler in the kingdom. Doesn't this sound like Joseph? Who can interpret this dream? Bring him on. He'll be second in the kingdom. I'll set him up for life. But no one can. Then all of a sudden the queen comes in. You're like, where's the queen been? Was she not invited? This Well, remember his concubines are here. (laughs) He's not really interested in having the queen around. There's still jealousy even if you're the queen with all these concubines and other women. So now she comes in, though, because she hears that his knees are knocking. He's scared to death. Eyes popping out. He's white as a sheep. And she says, you know what? There is a man. I remember this man. He's a slave from Judah. But he used to be in charge of all the wise men. He used to be the chief magician. Under your father, Nebuchadnezzar. Notice what she says, the spirit of the gods lives in him. And she may be saying it wrong, but she's seeing the same thing. And that is, this man is spirit filled. She even says, he has an excellent spirit about him. 
I started thinking in, in reading and studying this. Would pagans, would the White House, would the Kremlin, who would they call on if they couldn't figure it out? Who would your boss call on in a time of dire trouble? I don't mean just some problem that other engineers can figure out. I mean one that only the Spirit of God could accomplish. Would you be on that list? Would you be known as a man, a woman, who the Spirit of God dwells in, that has an excellent spirit about them? If you wouldn't be on the list... You're in good company. But you can be. You do not have to live for yourself. You don't. Thanks be to God. Jesus did not, as he rode into Jerusalem, just accomplish the forgiveness of sins. But he conquered sin He became victorious over sin. And if at the center of sin is I, what Jesus invites the I in all of us to do is to come and die with him so that we might live with him. That's the good news. The good news is not that you can continue to live in the dumps a prideful Life that mocks God, but rather that you can live free. That the chains are broken. That you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus, even after his death on the cross, even after the resurrection says, guys, don't go anywhere. The best is yet to come. Wait in Jerusalem For the promise of the Father. Brothers and sisters, not as an orator this morning, but as a brother that cares for your soul, have you received that promise? Do you know the fullness of God's Spirit? There is no life without God's Spirit. And Daniel had that Spirit. And the queen of all people (laughs) knew about it and remembered and now suggests to Belshazzar, hey, go get that guy. He can tell you. And so, guess what? Daniel shows up and the king brings Daniel in. And then the king begins to praise Daniel. Again, it's this crazy thing that we've seen in the other episodes. A pagan king praising one of God's elect people. And so he says, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. And I've heard, this is verse 14, and I've heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you. And that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. 
then he basically says, look, my wise men aren't very wise. But you are. And Daniel would say, not I, but God. Isn't that what he already told Nebuchadnezzar? Remember what he told Nebuchadnezzar? said, all right, now, you're the guy that's supposed to interpret this dream. He said, no, I, don't, I can't do that. Only, only God can do that, sir. Oh. So then Daniel, we just read his sermon. He basically, re- so he says, I'll give you the interpretation, big fella. So your color will change back, hopefully. Knees stop knocking. But before I do, let me just rehearse to you what the problem is. Now notice the different strategy that Daniel takes. Because you remember when he was dealing with Nebuchadnezzar? He's like, he's very proper with Nebuchadnezzar. Seems like they're almost friends if you read the book, really. He actually cares for Nebuchadnezzar. Several times Nebuchadnezzar was laying before him and you know, bowing down and, and you know, all this sort of thing. But he actually seems to care. Here, remember, Daniel's now an older statesman. <laughs> He's been at this for a long time. He's had several rulers even after Nebuchadnezzar here. And now Belshazzar probably calls him in. The guy's probably asleep. This is a late night party. He comes in and he doesn't doesn't bull at all with them. Instead he says, look, I'm going to go for the jugular. You're prideful just like your father. Let's get that on the table. This is why the handwriting has come. And now... O king, let me tell you what, in fact, these words mean. Numbered. Numbered, twice, remember. And then weighed and finally divided. And what he means by this is your, your days are numbered. Your days are numbered. And truly, we could all say that this handwriting on the wall which still, by the way, is a phrase that's used today, and it comes from here. No words, oh, you better see the handwriting on the wall, buddy. This is the end. Well, the point is, this is the end, and we all will have an end. It's very helpful to remember that we're going to have an end, not just for retirement planning purposes. Not just for estate planning for your children, but instead for the kingdom. For the kingdom. We live for more than money and food and houses and cars and the things of this world. We live for the kingdom of God to come. And it is coming. And it has come. And it will come. This is what the good news of waving these palms are about. The kingdom has been inaugurated. He's already given the inauguration speech. The show has begun and your days as my days are numbered. And we will all be weighed. I don't just mean on a weight scale. I mean, I don't even mean that we're going to be weighed to one another. I hear it over and over again until I want to throw up. And that is, well, you just think you're better than me. Or, well, I'm better as compared to so-and-so. At least I don't talk about people like they do. Well, you're talking about them as you're saying you're not talking about people. (laughs) 
we do not compare ourselves to mere humans, but to Jesus. And all of us are going to be found wanting in that comparison. We're all in the same boat, brothers and sisters. We all should be overwhelmed by our need for God in every breath, in every decision, in every marriage, in every family, with every child of God. From our works, to where we play, to where we live. Well, the end of the story is that Daniel gets awarded. I kind of, I had to laugh when I, when I read this. And it's, he gives him really bad news. Tonight you're going to die. It's over. Your days are numbered. Your days are up. You've been weighed. You've been found wanting. The show's over. He says, all right, bring in the gold chain. Load him up with the purple. He gets awarded for telling bad news. Kind of like a meteorologist, right? The Bible says, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. I love the little historical nuggets there. Like, why would you put that in there other than it's real? That's why. (laughs) People have a lot of problems in the scholarly world with Daniel 5 because we can't find everything extra biblically. Historically speaking, some of the names are different and this and that. I mean, that sounds like a first-hand account of the guy who is older, who knows all these things. He knows the guy personally. I'm going to trust this guy that was there more than people who weren't there, right? God's word is clear, and that is, all our days are numbered. We will all be judged. But thanks be to God, we're judged by Jesus We have an advocate if we would only humble ourselves. All the times that we've messed up, all the times that we've sinned, all the times that... If you can just imagine all of your sins of thought, word, and deed being written on the wall... We'd all crawl under the chair. Every one of us would crawl under the chair. In shame. But Jesus, if we would look up, is open arms, ready to give himself to us. Ready to wipe it all clean. Let's just forget that and move on. He's ready to be in relationship with us if we'd only act. Now, interestingly, Nebuchadnezzar is given a chance to repent, and he does a couple of times, a couple, three or four times. Belshazzar is not. I don't know when your days are numbered and that final day comes, but why not now? 
Why not here? Why not at the beginning of Holy Week you say, God, I really can't be the husband, the wife, the brother, the sister, the mother, the father, the employee that I need to be. The citizen in your kingdom that I need to be. I need your help. I need your spirit. Would you say that with me today? As God continually speaks from his word over 2,600 years ago down to us today, the handwriting is on the wall. We ought to fear God and repent because He is a good God. He's a faithful God. And He cares so much about each and every one of you. And He sent me this morning to look you in the eyes and tell you that. Just as He sent that hand. (laughs) Glad He didn't do that today, right? That'd be kind of... You know, um, but he sent me. And he sent this church. He sent these musicians. He sent all that participated this morning in setting up and cleaning up to say one thing repent and believe. Repent and believe, and you will find new life. You will find the Spirit, and when you find the Spirit, you'll find all things. So seek Him now. Amen.